This is Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. My name is Lucy Dawkins and I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donlan and Nick Ormerod about all they have discovered about life in theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. In this episode, I'm talking to Declan about how he chooses and designs exercises to help out actors in rehearsal. So hello, Declan. Hello, Lucy. So today we're going to talk about a topic that you get asked about a lot, I think, by young directors, which is what exercises do you use in rehearsals? And I know that you don't love that question. Can you can you tell me more about why that is? No, I, I can't stand that question. I completely understand why people do ask it. But it's like being asked a technique rather than what are we trying to achieve. What does an exercise stem from? What am I doing in my job in the room? There are actors in front of me and I'm trying to work with the actors to release something that has some life. And my greatest joy is the moment when you release some life with with the actor, you do it together, together with the other person, you make something that's alive. And that's kind of one of the ways you get through the day rehearsing is you're trying to release life and then organise so that that can be released quite regularly. So we're, we're after this thing called life and there are certain things I can say about it. Life is always to do with connections and life is to do with an understanding that everything is in process and change and nothing is a state. So say somebody is doing, for example, a speech in front of me and sometimes it's great and it's fantastic and I don't know why it's fantastic and then sometimes it's bad and I've got to do something to make it better and what am I going to do? I've spent a lot of time observing this and trying to see if there's something I can do to help or is it just something totally outside my control. But I think there is something that I've noticed and that is that sometimes when an actor's doing something in front of you and it's dead, you notice something absolutely extraordinary that's completely huge. It's not subtle. It's like a four-ton pink elephant in the room that you just haven't been noticing. And The fact is that very often the speech is dead because the actor's actually nowhere. So do you mean they're just completely unconnected to the space around them? Yes. Now, of course, the actor's somewhere. The actor's sort of shivering on the floor, feeling blocked and a bit embarrassed and self-conscious and hopeful and hoping everything's somehow magically going to be okay. But that the character that we're trying to give life to is nowhere. Sometimes the actor thinks, or the director thinks, um, you really need to mean the words, you need to mean everything, you need to work on everything, you need to get every nuance right. If I go up here, if I go down there, if I do a quick turn there, if I do that there. And you can work on something phenomenally complicated, and it still doesn't do any good, because you're still, you're nowhere. The actor can mean every word, they can mine every word, they can make every complication, they can be incredibly clever, they can write an essay about it. But if they're not anywhere. Nothing happens. Nothing can compensate for not being there. So it's less about learning an exercise. It's about knowing what you're trying to achieve and designing something that's going to help the actor to do that. Yes. First of all, you've got to analyse what's going wrong. All exercises that I do embarrass me because they're a bit like dead hair. They're something that I use and then chuck away. And I've noticed watching you in rehearsal rooms and workshops with actors that you're actually changing your exercises all the time you tend to invent things on the spot there's often a framework of a kind of exercise that's worked before but you're always adapting it to the needs of that actor that you're seeing in front of you 
in that moment. It's never just apply this exercise, we're going to do this exercise, guys. Yes, exactly. There's a myth of an old Zen master. I'm not saying I'm an old Zen master. <laughs> I have no wish to be an old Zen master. I'm old. There's an old story of a Zen master and he and his students are admiring his finger and they're thinking, what a beautiful finger he's got, isn't it long? And does it point slightly to the left? Does it point slightly to the right? Does it point slightly upside and point down? And they're all looking at the finger and none of them realise that the finger's pointing at the moon. So is that as much to say that these exercises are useless if you don't know what you're pointing at with them? If you don't know what the exercise are trying, is trying to do, don't do it. It isn't a thing. The exercise is not a thing. They're normally fingers pointing at the moon. You know, you have to wonder what the moon is that they're trying to point out. And so it sounds to me understandable that you don't want to just hand out the exercises that you use in cheek by jowl rehearsal rooms because your exercises are so particular to what you think aliveness looks like as a director and what your experience of of bringing something to life looks like you can't fit an exercise to someone else's taste also yes i mean so for me what's the moon i'm talking about the simple problem that the actor has to locate the character in space that's the simple problem but it's enormous and some people do it absolutely naturally there are, i've seen people pick up a script they haven't even, sometimes they haven't even read it annoyingly and they they're just totally located when they read it and it's amazing you think how do they do that but if you talk about it, they have no idea how they do it some people can never do it they can write an essay on every word and they'll never do it there's not too many of those, thank God. But there's a lot of people who can get much, much better at it. And very often they've just gone down the wrong doors, used the wrong keys, gone down the wrong rabbit holes. But the important thing is to really abandon yourself to the space. What interests me about this is that your moon, what makes the scene feel alive and look alive, has changed for you over time. I mean, very slightly, it's always been in the same realm. But the way you've talked about what brings scene to life has changed between when you wrote your last book the actor and the target which was about targeting every action onto something and now that idea is still present in the way that you talk about aliveness today but it's shift much more onto focusing on the space as a as a whole so you're always rethinking what it is that you're trying to point the actors towards in order to give them the best steers, the most exciting catalysts for life possible. And that these exercises are always changing depending on how you're changing what you're thinking you're pointing them towards, right? Yes, it's, it is strange. It's, it's not so much like rethinking. It's more like um, observing and becoming more and more attentive to what the problem is. And the, and the problem is one of dissociation from the space, disconnection from the space. When we deconnect, when we have that, the French is that fantastic word, débranché, which is when the, you're, the plug's pulled out. You realise how we get unplugged from the space incredibly easily. And we do that out of self-defence. And that's because the space is dangerous. And do you know something? I, I, I'm not here to say, oh, don't be worried, please, please don't be worried, because the space really isn't dangerous. The space is bloody dangerous. And there are some people in the world who are entirely safe, and you can visit them any day in any cemetery. And those people <laughs> are completely safe. The rest of us aren't. <laughs> so, for example, you know, Romeo in Juliet's garden is in a very dangerous place. And it's very dangerous for him to disconnect from that. And he'll very often disconnect from that because he thinks he's so in love with Juliet, he doesn't care anymore, and he doesn't. But we never actually forget where we are. We are always 
present somewhere. And sometimes we think, you know, that oh, this situation is so intense that, um, you know, I forgot where I was. I, I don't actually think that's true. I don't think we ever do. I've heard you describe this sometimes as just letting yourself get a bit stupid about a scene. Mm-hmm. As in, what is actually going on in terms of the kind of grubby human interaction of this scene? Yes. Don't get distracted by meaning all the language no, and quite. the vast piece of text that you're having to deal with. No, quite. Get stupid about the scene, right? Well, ask a simple, stupid question. There are lots of things I wish I'd known when I was starting as a director, if I could go back and I could give myself advice, which I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have listened to <laughs> because I'd have been too bloody clever to listen to it because I knew everything when I was younger. Now I'm a bit wiser and my wisdom tells me that I don't know very much at all. I think... The, the important thing is that you, you shouldn't be too fond of your own cleverness because I, I do have a clever bit of my brain, you know. I, I, I can be sort of clever and funny, but they're not the best bit of me. They're not the bit that makes a play good. I've got another bit that's a slightly sort of more stupid, rather more bleak, more intuitive, something that I certainly can't explain. I can't certainly can't justify. There's always those two sides, that, and they're slightly at war with each other. And to just kind of not look at the one that's not really very helpful, the flashy one that's not very helpful. I think um, when you're a director in a room, you feel very, very alone. And I, what was easy for me was that I had Nick, so that was sort of hugely important. And it's great if you have collaborators when you start. You do feel very lonely, and of course you do feel tremendous imposter syndrome, because why should anybody listen to what I've got to say? But every now and then... You know, you see something that's undeniably, or I saw something that was undeniably alive, and that made me feel very, very happy. Particularly when I started to work at a drama school. There was a wonderful Australian man called Lyle Jones who ran a, the Arts Ed Drama School in London, and he asked me to come and teach them to do, well, to do shows with the second year and then the third year. And, the, and uh, I learned a lot. And the reason I learned a lot was I, my students taught me, which everybody always says. But the only thing I had to do was try and make those actors as good as I, as I possibly could and to sort of try and help them. And if something burst into life, however briefly, it was great. And, and it was a great connected feeling because what never happens is that I think something's burst into life and the actors don't. That never happens. That loneliness has never ever happened to me quite the reverse is that when something bursts into life the whole room understands it there's that amazing intake of breath you can feel everybody's lungs changing yes and a wind goes through the room or something happens but it doesn't last and you can do the same thing again 10 minutes later and it's dead as a doornail and then you know the danger is always at that moment is you'll, you'll remember the symptom and rather than the path that you took to get there and the important thing is to retrace your steps bit further back to before to see how you got there and then maybe you can get to the same place again i've always found it's a deadly note as a director when you see that moment come alive and then you go that was amazing because and then you never get it again it no. will never come again because what you've done is you've noted the symptom drawn everyone's attention to it and not paid attention to making sure the dominoes are lined up so that that can happen again unpredictably in its own way and be alive differently every time it's going to happen exactly exactly and that's the thing that you have to be alert and alive to so you have to be alert and alive to those things and then use whatever bloody exercises it needs in the rehearsal to get there and you invent them but they're just temporary trash they're like you know they're to be disposed so what well, i just worries when people say you know 
what exercises do you use? Like I'm some sort of Scrooge and I've got a, a safe full of exercises. But honest to God, it's really not like that. It really, really isn't like that. I, I just invent things on the spur of the moment to try and connect the actor to the space and to whoever they're speaking to. Just as simple as that. It's as banal as that, if you like. By the space, well, I'd start with the physical space, like the wall or a chair or the floor or themselves or a partner or something, but then always pointing, um, uh, always connecting to the person you're speaking to because we must always remember that everything that we say is about the person that we're addressing and that to utter any word, there must be somebody who we are addressing, even when we are speaking to ourselves. So I don't have many rules, but that's one of them. There's no such thing as an utterance. There's, it, we just don't do it. Only a reaction, a reply. No, exactly. Everything is a dialogue. Even if the other person's not listening to you or not interested you. It's in even your, more of a dialogue then. <laughs> it's even more of a dialogue then. It's the powerlessness that spurs us into action very often. So would your advice to emerging directors be, yeah. don't look for the right exercises, work out what the moon is that you're trying to point out first. Yes, and just see that, on the whole, the mystery is why do we disconnect? And it's not just the actors. I think the worst thing is if the director starts to pathologise the actors, say, oh, these actors are having a terrible problem, unlike me, and because I, I know everything. Actually, the director also gets quite disconnected from the script and from, from what's actually happening in the script. And I mean, there are Shakespeare texts I look back that I've, I've done maybe two or three times, and sometimes I have a, a, a thing, oh my God, is that what's happening? I've never realised what was happening. Oh my God, that's what's happening there. And I see for the first time something that I've been disconnected from. It's quite reassuring for me, I suppose. I've got something to learn. I also feel rather stupid, particularly if I've <laughs> done it a lot in different languages and completely missed a point. Well, it's also quite reassuring to think that you're always going to be looking for answers. You're always going to be looking for better ways of making the work. And that doesn't end it's a lifetime's job no quite i think looking for answers is very different from getting the answer i mean i think on the whole if you find the answer you've probably gone wrong because if you're doing something that's um, in any way to do with life every question that you answer is going to release many many more questions and that's a, a that's a very good sign of life the, the thing that i want to say and i'm sorry if it sounds a bit pretentious but the life is relational and that the you the actor cannot be alive inside themselves they can only be alive in relation to something else so when life is there we all know it it all it shines in all our faces and i also find it really interesting talking to cheap by jail actors who've worked with you over extended periods of time who notice that your exercises have changed like oh we're not doing that one anymore or oh this one's changed a bit or this is a bit different and it seems that you are also not particularly interested in settling on something that's worked once and repeating it and repeating and repeating no. it. One of the horrible things about life, an enduringly um, unpopular aphorism, is that nothing works twice. <laughs> it sounds a bit clever, but I'm afraid we have to kind of face up to it as well. So I think it's totally natural that people want to understand how you make your work. And when you're starting out and you're trying to find ways of making rehearsal rooms work really well for you, that you do want advice with exercises. I know I have done as a director starting out. But I think it's also just such a, a fantastic health warning to really keep an eye on what you want the exercises for. I think there's a difference between what exercises do you use and the question, and I'm trying to do this how could I make an exercise that could help me help the actor in that way? Yes, this sounds awful, but the exercises are just trash. <laughs> I mean, the important thing is the life. 
and the exercise is there to release the life, you know. The exercise is like the skin of the chrysalis that you just have to walk away from, something that will help you, something that will unblock for a moment, and then you leave it and you go away. But my God, don't be respecting the exercise. Well, I think that's where we're going to end for today. So thanks very much, Declan. Thank you, Lucy. Goodbye now. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then head on over to the Cheek by Gel website where you can find many series of this podcast along with images and videos of past productions. We've got more bonus episodes coming soon. The music you're hearing now was composed by Sergei Chekhoshov for Cheek by Gel's production of Three Sisters. Three Sisters.